Good evening, everybody. Uh, Thursday night. Thursday My trash night. goes out. Yeah, no, no. <laughs> I, I, I know what tonight is because tomorrow morning is Friday morning. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and the, the contempt hearing is at 10 a.m. Uh, tomorrow morning at the courthouse. And it uh, should be a good day. I'm looking forward to it. Um, yeah, we've been uh, working with our attorneys and uh, getting ready for tomorrow. And uh, it, it, I, I, I really believe it's going to be favorable. It's going to be the county, they're reasonable folks. Uh, the city's reasonable. I don't think anybody wanted it to get to where it is right now. And as you've heard me speak positively of uh, Linda Parks and uh, John Zaragoza, and I, like I said, I don't know Steve Bennett, but they're good people who want to do uh, the right thing. We have different ideologies. We're looking at the data differently. Um, and I, I think Rigo Vargas, as I've spoken kindly of him, same thing. And I, I know the folks who work at the county. And I, they didn't want this. We didn't want this. We'll figure it out. And that'll happen tomorrow. And so uh, Judge O'Neill seems to be reasonable. Um, I, I, I don't know the attorneys. They seem a little bit more aggressive than uh, the county um, uh, representatives. But uh, we'll figure all that out tomorrow. And at 10 a.m., so grateful for all your prayers. Unbelievable support. We got a, a tweet today from Newt Gingrich, former Speaker of the House. We got a tweet today from Senator uh, uh, Ted Cruz, Ted Cruz uh, Senator Rand Paul and his wife Kelly. Uh, yeah, uh, Lieutenant Governor Dan Force mentioned us at the CNP in his speech. Everyone cheered uh, back in Washington. Charlie mentioned us three times in his speech. Again, everyone cheered. Mm -hmm. So we're, we've got national coverage mm -hmm. in relation to this. My, my Twitter accounts increased. My Instagram's increased. All just doing nothing today. It's kind of <laughs> nice. And so everybody's mindful of it. Everyone's concerned about it. And the, the fervent, faithful prayers of God's people accomplish great things. And I wanted to say thank you to all of you. I was in Murrieta last night uh, at 412 Church with Tim Thompson. And what an amazing guy. And what a great work he's been doing. A lot of you had a chance to tune in. I know they'd had some technical difficulties. So we're going to post that on Saturday so everyone can see it. I, you know, the, I, I think it was last week or the week before, he came and did a, a, a yeah. live stream right here out in the... In the grass area right yeah, here. So that he, was impressive. His whole church came out to support us. Yeah. And he still had to preach. So he did three services or, yeah, three services out on the lawn while yeah. I was in here preaching. And he yeah. finished the last sermon and came in and sat in on my sermon. Yeah. The guy amazing. is an amazing blessing yeah. And, yeah. and such a, a treasure. And so um, thank you to all of you uh, across the country. And actually, we have, we're taking a look at it. We've got folks from Switzerland and Australia and New Zealand and Singapore and I mean, we, Cambodia. We've got people from all over the world who have tuned into our live stream. They've given us their well wishes, stacks of cards and letters and emails and texts. And you all are precious. And we're so grateful. Uh, we... <laughs> We didn't expect to be here doing this. We, we never really wanted it. We just wanted to have church. And who would have thought that being open uh, would put you in this position? Yes. And I, I think as a result of, of the well wishes and the chats and the viewership, we are getting some amazing guests. Yeah. And we got some amazing guests lined up this week. And on Sunday, we got Charlie coming. Charlie Kirk's coming Sunday morning. He'll be for all three services. He's preaching. Uh, tell everybody and their grandmother about it and come on out. Charlie will be here uh, tonight. I'm going to get to that in a moment. I don't want to spoil yeah. it yet because I, yeah. I, I told him we're coming on 707. Yeah. I, I want to say that um, not only are we grateful, but there's a number of folks that have, uh, that have used every connection they have. And I have been doing endless interviews because of what all of you have done to make connections. And, and some of the podcasts and the Zooms and the interviews and the phone interviews and the papers and the things that everyone's done. I, I have met some of the neatest people across the country who have been so supportive. We've got uh, churches gathered today in North Carolina to specifically pray for God speak for tomorrow's event. Uh, we, we've got churches in Michigan praying for us. We, uh, a, a man, his name's Jonathan, he does a podcast. He had me on his podcast late one night. He has become such a precious friend. I had a pastor from Coeur d'Alene, Idaho, uh, reach out to me and, and bless us. And I have to tell you, thank you, everybody. It, it is unbelievable, uh, the, the response and how faithful all of you are. I, th I think this is, this is a call across the country uh, that 
it, it, it's actually a decision. What direction are we going to go? And here we are culminating no, in first Tuesday in November. Uh, is this going to be a nation, land of the free, home of the brave? Is this a nation that's going to cherish liberty? Uh, and everyone is, is asking that question. And we're all pondering it. And then the last thing before I introduce our guest, because he's going to give great insight into mm-hmm. all of this. Amazing guy. Uh, I had a, a call today with, uh, I was on a Zoom call with the C3 churches, Pastor Jurgen, who was here mm-hmm. uh, on Sunday. And he put the call out to this network of churches and they're all opening on Sunday as a result of your efforts and Pastor Jurgen and the encouragement and the blessing and watching people stand and say, you know what? And, and I'll give you one statistic that we found out by a Freedom of Information Act, 97 deaths in Ventura County. We've come to find out 95 of those are people who died with covid Two people have died from COVID. A 93-year-old man and a 78-year-old woman. 93-year-old man. Yeah. yeah. That, that's shocking. I mean, we, we've got an overdose death of somebody who died from an overdose but had COVID. That's considered one of the 97 in the county. So I think it's time that we really take a look at these things. So... Um, this is what we're up against. And, and this is kind of a clarion call to the church. Mm-hmm. And I, I think churches, especially in our community, everyone's looking at it. Uh, we're all trying to figure it out. And this man for years, our guest, uh, for years has been looking at the intricacies of the church. And he's a numbers guy, but he's not nerdy, yeah. <laughs> which is kind of cool. Because usually you meet numbers guys and they're nerdy. Yeah. But he's actually funny. Yeah. And he has written countless books. He has been instrumental in uh, the direction of the church. He's a man who does projected data. He does sampling. He does, uh, you know, surveys on and on and on and has given for for countless years the ability for the church to kind of see what's happening and getting a a kind of a a real understanding of the situation of the church. And so without any further ado, I want to welcome our guest tonight. And he's actually here in Ventura, but we're going to bring him in live stream because it's still a bit of a haul from Ventura. Would you welcome with me tonight the famous, amazing, coolest dude, even though he deals in nerdy numbers, George Barna. <laughs> hey, how's it going? <laughs> I'm doing great, but now you're blowing the nerd connection. I was just trying to convince my grandson two days ago, being a nerd is where it's at, buddy. Yeah. Come on. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. You got all the guitars in the background that offset it, so you're good. <laughs> yeah, yeah. George, you got to have music. You got to have sports. Got to yeah. have numbers. George, yeah. you're a musician. I didn't know that. Yeah, I worked my way through grad school playing in different bands and a lot of bands since then. I, I love music. Yeah. That's awesome. Well, uh, I, I was. Uh, Dave and I had a chance to to see a couple videos on you, and of course, I've read. I'd probably say at least three of your books. Uh, I've been introduced to you primarily through both a mutual friend, David Barton, who you've done extensive work with. And it was, it was the work you together had done to take a look at kind of the evangelical Bible-believing churches uh, and, and the topics that the congregants want the pastor to talk on, but the pastor believes that the word of God speaks to all of it, but he avoids those topics, and the congregation wants the pastor to speak on those topics. That was revolutionary to me, because I thought I was boring the congregation by picking topics like politics and immigration and <laughs> Islam, and, and yet they, they wanted me to te- speak on that, and it was, it was your study that opened my eyes to that, and I want to say thank you, first of all, how blessed I am by that. You know, that was an important study for me as well, because obviously doing what I do over the course of years, I've had so many frustrations about what we do and do not address in our churches. And one of the key things about that study was to hear a majority of congregants telling us, I don't want my pastor telling me who to vote for, but I'm dying for my pastor to teach me how to think biblically about the issues that will help me figure out who I should vote for. And so to hear people begin to articulate that and to be able to share that with pastors, conservative pastors in particular, 
across the country was was a huge blessing to me as well. Now, I, I know you do surveys across the country, and I know one thing where you failed. You've never done a survey in our church, and it would throw off your entire <laughs> survey if you came into our church and you you asked those questions. You'd be like, wait, wait, what? <laughs> I mean, we take what you say to heart, and we apply it, and then you don't even come survey us. Yeah, well... And you know, we're, we're in your own backyard. Other people need it, okay? You got it. You got it right there. But we're in your own backyard. You can talk about the success of it. I mean, we went from a church of 400 a couple of weeks ago to 2,500 overnight. And, and it's, it's a result of just simply what are we dealing with here? And, and how do we provide a congregation with leadership and understanding of the issues of the day? And here we are on our 141st live stream. We've done them nightly since the lockdown where we're dealing in data we're dealing in issues pertaining to the nation. We're, we're looking at all of that. We bring in doctors and psychologists and statisticians and all of these things. And, and people, uh, we've gone from zero to 10,000, almost 10,000 subscribers yeah. because this is stuff that they're hungry for. You want to speak to that? Well, yeah, I mean, we, we have this impression. A lot of people have the impression that when you go to church, you only talk about churchy things. Mm-hmm. And the reality is that being a Christian is about invading every dimension of life. Love it. It comes back to the development of your worldview, which is something everybody has a worldview. It's your operating system, if you will, for how you're going to make decisions. And the types of things that you're addressing on your broadcast, because I've watched a bunch of them, uh, it, it's not necessarily churchy stuff. It's like, how do I think about the world? How do I think about biblical truth? How do I apply that to the different things that I'm going to encounter in life? And the beauty of it is that a lot of what you've had on your show challenges our thinking. And so when I think about what you're doing, it's like better TV than watching the you know drama stuff that they're offering, which doesn't really take you anywhere. It might even make you a little depressed. You know, and what this is doing is it's asking you to be thinking like a disciple of Jesus without getting all gospel on people. You're actually giving them the goods of the gospel, if you will. And so I'm, I'm grateful for that. Yeah. Oh, thank you. I, I'm, I'm honored. I didn't know you watched any of our episodes. Yeah, I, I thought I was going on a long, lonely walk. Yeah. But I, I, guess, I, I, I will say that we do present all those and everything points to Christ and we do present the gospel, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, that we're sinners, that we need to be saved by grace and his propitiation and his, his death on the cross. And we, we cover all that. We, we make a point of it. We lead people to the Lord and, and we call for the question. But that's not all. We don't just seek converts. We want to make disciples. And so there's extensive work to be done in relation to that. And so that worldview, that concept that you've put forward, and, and I love this article that you sent to us. In, in the absence, there, there appears to be an absence of a Christian worldview in America. And I, I really want you to talk on that tonight. I, I, I want to see that reinvigorated. That, I mean, that was the, the hotbed and the foundation of the nation. You know, as we've been doing this research, and I started looking at this about 25 years ago. And when I did my first worldview, national worldview studies, I was really taken aback, very disappointed, frustrated, irritated by the fact that back in 1995, only 12% of the adult population in America had a biblical worldview. Well, here we are now, 25 years later, with more churches, more technology, more money, more stuff, and that number has been cut in half. We've only got 6% of the adult population with a biblical worldview. Some people would say, well, that doesn't really matter. Let's take a look at the people who know Christ as their Lord and Savior. Okay, let's do that. If you do, what you find is only one out of every five of those people, not those who call themselves born again, but the ones that, based on our research, we would look at their theological beliefs. We classify them as born again because they would say, uh, not only do they believe in God, not only do they consider themselves Christian, but they believe that when they die, they will go to heaven, but only because they've confessed their sins and embraced Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. When we look at that proportion of the population, which is only one-third of the population in and of itself, with that one-third, only one out of five of them have a biblical worldview. So we really have a lot of work to do here. 
And one of the things I want to make sure that I get across, because wherever I talk about worldview development, this is maybe the most important thing for us to hear. A, a person's worldview, whatever it winds up being, whether it's a biblical worldview, Eastern mystical worldview, Marxism, secular humanism, there, there are a lot of different worldviews to choose from. That worldview starts developing at 15 to 18 months of age mm -hmm. and is almost completely developed by the age of 13. Hmm. One, of the, one of the studies that I did, a longitudinal study where we track people over a long period of time. And one of the things that we concluded was that most people, the vast majority of Americans, will die believing what they believed at age 13. It doesn't change much after that. The Holy Spirit can intervene at any time, change anybody in any way. But, you know, I'm a sociologist. I look at averages. And I'll tell you, on average, people don't change much after the age of 13 in terms of their core beliefs, their core relational strategies, their core dreams. I mean, all of these things that determine who they are, how they're going to live, and what they see as their place in the world. Yeah. Uh, just, just for those folks out there that don't, don't know what you mean when you say biblical worldview, can you define that for them? Yeah. You know, a worldview basically is the... Uh, intellectual, emotional, moral, and spiritual lens that we have that enables us to make sense of the world and figure out our place in it. So it's the way that we take in information, interpret it, and respond to it. Everybody has to have a worldview to get through the day. It's the thing that helps you to make your decisions based on your interpretation of all these things and where you want to go in life. So when we talk about a biblical worldview, that's where you're using the Bible as your basic filter for understanding what's going on in the world around us, who we are, why we're here, what we want to accomplish, how we want to be seen by others, what we want our relationships to be like spiritually, all of these kinds of things. When we look to the Bible for the answers on those things, our values, our morals, our relationships, etc. That's what a biblical worldview does. It informs all those kinds of decisions that we're going to make. As I mentioned, 94 out of every 100 people in America do not have a biblical worldview, meaning that when they make their decisions about money, when they make their decisions about marriage, when they make their decisions about friendships and, and jobs and where they're going to live and how they're going to treat people and what they believe about truth and where they're going to try to find truth, they're not looking to the Bible for the answers to those critical issues. They're looking elsewhere. And that's why in America today we're having so much tension is because there are these conflicting ideas about what's right and wrong, about where we should look for truth, or even if we should believe that there is a truth. It, uh, there's a, a, a famous historian of revival, I think the foremost historian of revival, J. Edwin Orr. And he had multiple doctorates. The last one I believe he achieved at UCLA. And, and he, he would go through, especially the history of the United States, where what you just described right there, the nation's been at that place before, where churches were closed, uh, you know, bankruptcies were up, uh, alcoholism was rampant. The, it, it's, it's almost as though they'd abandoned everything pertaining to Christ. And then you have the Second Great Awakening of 1857 with Jeremiah Lanfear. So God has the ability to work through these processes, but we have to see what it is we're dealing with and this idea that we say, you know what, something has to change, and we cry out for that. And I know with numbers and being a sociologist, you get to a place where you go, well, my intellectual mindset says this is highly problematic and almost irreversible, but for God. Well, yeah, and, and you know, the reality is when you read through the Bible, one of the things I love about the Old Testament is that God— in various places throughout the New, uh, Old Testament, excuse me, uh, he changed nations, he changed tribes, he changed cities, he changed all kinds of people in a variety of different places. And almost every time he did it, he did it through a remnant of individuals who were completely sold out to his way of understanding reality. They took on his mindset and they committed themselves to being his people in that place at that time. 
and were willing to surrender their own personal agendas for his agenda and were willing to say, take me, use me, have your way with me, Lord, do what you want. And he would take that remnant and usually what he did, it blows me away every time I read it, he would take a number of people, and it was already a small number of people, let's say it was 10,000, and he'd look at them and say, well, they're going up against 100,000, eh, I don't need the 10,000, I'll just use 1,000 of them. You know, and, and, and the natural mind would say, no, bad decision. You know, but, but, but with the power of God, the blessing of the Holy Spirit, with God's truth and his power behind you, you're going to win. Yeah. And so I look at our situation in America now and people say, how do you keep from becoming depressed? It's, <laughs> well, it's simple. I read the Bible Amen. and I see yeah. that God always has his way ultimately. And he works through those people who are so committed to him, who love him so deeply that they will do whatever he calls them to do. And we've got those people here in America today. Amen. I mean, if you consider the 6% who have a biblical worldview to be that remnant and consider the fact that we've got roughly 255 million adults in this country, people 18 and older. I mean, that's more than 15 million people. You telling me with an army of 15 million people, you couldn't radically change this country? Of course you could. Amen. We don't even need all of them. So, uh, you know, God, God will have his way in his time. We just have to be prepared and willing. You, you had brought up at watching earlier how he came about loving numbers. Uh, through, uh, through the baseball cards. <laughs> <laughs> Where are when they I was at a in kid, your, are they I, on your I was, You know, I had, I had all the cards. You know, I was an avid collector. And I would just read those day after day after day, hour after hour. And I'd write up stat sheets and I'd, I'd mix them and match them and do all kinds of stuff. I looked for the errors that the tops baseball people made, found a lot of them, wrote into them, never heard back. But yeah, I mean, you know, that, that was a great starting point for me because what was happening was I'd look at those cards and whereas my friends would put them on the spokes of their bicycles, you know, to make noise right, when yeah. they'd rumble down the street, you know, I'm looking at him saying, but wait a minute, guys, this is telling us a story. I'm learning something about Mickey Mantle. I'm learning something about Roger Maris, about Sandy Koufax, whoever it may be. You know, those numbers speak to us in, in, in amazing ways. And that's what I find about all the research studies that I do here in America. It's not just a bunch of boring numbers that we put in charts and force our graduate students to memorize and spit back in papers. This is stuff that tells us about the heartbeat of America yeah. so well, that you, we can be agents of transformation for the glory of God. You know, the last 140 episodes, we've been giving a lot of numbers. And the reasons why we give the numbers is that we want to alleviate the fear that people have, are having. And numbers, and I, I assume that you would speak to this, is that they're truth. If you, if you are using the correct facts, you're getting truth, which alleviates fear. But it seems like, and you alluded to some of the other stuff that I watched on you, is that the way that we are getting information or data is really getting skewed, which hurts the ability to seek the truth. Do you have any studies or comments or thoughts on that? Yeah, and in fact, that's, that's something that I'm involved in looking at right now. Because of the presidential election, there's a lot of talk about how people are lying to pollsters. And, and when you think about the context in which somebody takes a survey, there's an implicit relationship between the respondent and the surveyor, the you know, person who's conducting the research. And if that trust isn't there then no, they're not going to tell the truth if they even do the survey. So there's a lot of different ways that you can skew the research, skew the results, uh, you know, whether it's through the way that you word the questions, the sequencing of the questions, how you analyze the data, the sample that you use, whether it's truly representative of the population that you're trying to speak to. One of the things that I've learned is that most of the research that's done in America today is garbage research. When you actually dig behind the scenes and try to figure out, is there an inherent bias in this and was that intentional? More often than not, whether it was intentional or not, I don't know, but often there are problems with the methodology. So you got to be careful about who you're trusting in terms of the analysis of the data. 
if it's not coming from a pure place, you're not going to get a pure outcome. Now, you you uh, you did politics, and you also campaign manager. You were a chief of staff. You know polling. You looked at numbers in relation to politics. We're coming into an election cycle. As somebody who's made a living doing this, where do you go for data when you want to look at what is the landscape? Because I have to tell you, I, I don't buy a single poll out there. Yeah, and, and that's why I keep polling is because I, it's hard to know who to trust. Uh, by and large, I do trust the Gallup people. I think that they're, they've been very reliable for a long period of time. Uh, I, I knew George Gallup Sr., knew George Gallup Jr. You know, they eventually sold the company. But, um, you know, for a long time, they've done good work. Uh, there are a couple of other smaller firms that, that I think are really trying hard and are doing good work. But it really is hard to put your trust in a lot of what's out there, especially once the media get their hands on the data, because most of them are not trained in data interpretation. And so they look for what they want to see. They report what they want to see, even though it may not be a proper interpretation. Wow. Yeah, that's the one thing is we've looked at CDC numbers. We looked at our Ventura numbers. It's interesting that somebody will say that uh, the uh, Germany or whoever has tested twice as many people as the United States has. And, but they're looking at it not not cases per million, they're looking at from a relative number. So even the interpretation of the data can be skewed by the way you want it, what your perspective is on it. Is there any kind of like gouge things that you help people look at when you're looking at data to make sure you're not interpreting it in their skewed methodology? You know, I'm going to have to enroll you in one of my classes at Arizona Christian University. Okay, good, we're good. going to straighten you out. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, there are no simple things uh, to do apart from trying to figure out where did, where did the information come from? Was mm -hmm. it gathered appropriately? Then looking at the tabulation process, were the numbers edited and combined and provided appropriately? And then trying to have an objective point of view where you're going into this. What was the hypothesis that you proposed when you put together the questions? And what does the data do in terms of speaking to that hypothesis? It's, it does get a bit complicated, but um, it's possible, I believe, to get a realistic reading of what's going on in our culture today through the numbers, but you gotta have the right numbers. Yeah. Uh, yeah. George, you, you were in the ministry, well, you were a pastor, yeah. and then you went into data. But I know that's simplistic. But uh, you were you were raised on the East Coast. You came out to California. Obviously, in somewhere in there, you, you came to Christ. You, you got married either before or after coming to the Lord. I don't know the history. I don't know how many kids you have. But what takes you from the pulpit into this world you're in now? And was it dissatisfaction with the pulpit or a struggle with it that brought you into this and wanting to understand it better? And then to really have a heartbeat on pastors and to be able to speak to data that ministers to them. What, how did that all transpire? Actually, uh, after I got out of the political realm and started doing research on faith in America and how it intersected with the culture, I was getting a lot of feedback from pastors who were my primary market. I wanted them to have the data so they could make informed and strategic decisions about ministry. And I was hearing from a lot of them because they really didn't like what I was finding. They said, well, you don't know what it's like being a pastor. You don't know what it's like leading a church. All right, well, there's only one way I know how to remedy that. I'll become a pastor and I'll lead a church. And so, you know, in, in a couple of different environments did that. One was a large multicultural uh, non-denominational church. The other was a small church uh, in the L.A. area. And... Um, realize that, you know what, yeah, okay, so I'm learning more about pastoral leadership, I'm learning more about congregational dynamics, all of that's helpful, it's insightful, but that's really not the calling that God gave to me. He really called me to come alongside of the church in all its forms and to try to help it understand its environment, what its options were, and what, how to prioritize those options. Yeah. And so after 
you know, having had those church experiences, returned full time to doing the kind of research work, hopefully better informed about how pastors might use it, how they might misunderstand it so I could communicate it differently. All of those things hopefully made me a better researcher. But really, it's, it's all because I believe that God has called me to be an agent of transformation in our culture. And the best way to do that, theoretically, is through the church. You know, because it's only God's truth that matters. That's the only truth there is. And, and so working with the dispensary of that truth, if you will, is an important element for me. And uh, so that, that's why I got back in, into the numbers grinding and you know all the, the things that I do. But it, it's meant to help the church. One of the studies I saw you do was on the, the top five things that churches will define as success. I, I looked and they didn't have on there a pastor going to court to try to stay open as being as the top five. But in your church experience, did you uh, see those five things that um, in the churches that you worked with? Yeah. And, you know, of course, that was one of the frustrations for me was being in institutional environments where those five factors were the keys. You know, the five factors, we, we did this national study year after year with the senior pastors of theologically conservative Protestant churches across the country. Theologically conservative, meaning that they believe the Bible is truth. They believe the Bible should be their guide for ministry and for life. But okay, well, these are the people I want to be helping. And so we asked them, is your ministry effective? Is it successful? And we found that uh, more than four out of five of them said, well, yes, it is. I thought, well, great. What's the criteria or what are the criteria that you use to determine that? We found that there were five things that a large majority of churches across the country measure on a regular basis to determine whether or not they're successful. How many people show up, how much money they raise, how many programs they offer, how many staff people they've hired, how much square footage they've built out. Hmm. Now, I'm a measurement guy, so I'm glad they're measuring stuff. But as a measurement guy, we have this expression, you get what you measure. And so you got to be measuring the right things. Jesus didn't die to put butts in seats. Jesus didn't die for churches to have the biggest real estate portfolio in the community. Jesus didn't die for any of those five factors. And so we need to be measuring the things that Jesus died for. You know, and when he talked about, the, you know, what we know is the Great Commission, go and make disciples of all the world. And, and he taught about what it means to make a disciple. You know, in, in John 8, he talked about uh, obey my teachings. In John 13, he talked about love one another. In John 15, he talked about produce spiritual fruit. Why aren't we measuring those things? If that's what makes a disciple, that's what we need to be measuring. Amen. And so... For me, it, it, you know, part of the importance of doing what I do is to be able to, to look at those kinds of measures. There are a lot of guys that are out there measuring who has the biggest church, who has the most people in Sunday school, which church has raised the most money. You know, God doesn't really care about that. That's yeah. not what he's measuring. And I want us to be looking at the things that matter to him. That's what should in, matter to us. In all the in all the work that you've done, and you said something funny before the the program, you, you said that you were speaking at a, at, at one location, and uh, I, I can't remember exactly, but they said something like "hide the razor blades" because this is going to depress you, kind of thing. Because you're always coming out with data that you know it it, it is concerning. I mean, you're, you're you're talking about numbers that just you know six percent that that paralyzes a lot of people. Tell me in, in all of your research, something that you were pleasantly surprised about, if you have anything. Ooh, I still, How long uh, is the show? The data operates in a lot of different ways. And one of the one of the things that we discovered in the last election cycle is that there's a segment of the population that we call sage cons. 
Now, SAGECONS is an acronym for Spiritually Active, Governance-Engaged, Conservative Christians. Wow. And I, I know that's my new a moniker. group of people. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, SAGECONS are people who are more involved in every dimension of the culture than any other group of people because their faith compels them to be so involved. They believe that the scriptures teach us we're not here just to have fun, to make ourselves happy, to get more toys. We're here to know, love, and serve God as deeply as we can. And so that means we have to be involved in politics. We have to be involved in education. We have to be involved in the media. We have to be involved in the church. We have to be involved in the family. You know, all these critical dimensions of the culture. And so for me, during that last election cycle, to discover this this group that nobody had ever identified before or talked about or profiled, and to see that, you know what, these people are so deeply involved. That, to me, was one of the most encouraging things that I've found in a long time. How did you Because dis- their faith is what drives them. How did you discover them? Well, what was the type of survey that you did that revealed them? All right. Well, here's the nerdiness coming out. I love it. <laughs> Bring it. When I do a survey, you know, they'll, they'll typically last about 15 minutes. I'll have, on average, 75 different questions. And so when I get the data, I start looking at every piece of data in connection with every other piece of data. By the time I'm done, it's called cross-tabulation. By the time I'm done cross-tabbing all of these things, I have more than 100,000 pieces of data out of every survey that I do. And so spending time looking at all these data cells, trying to figure out the connection between what somebody believes about the divinity of Jesus and how they vote what they believe about the nature of God and their educational background. You know, I mean, uh, and then putting a couple more layers on top of that. Uh, Eventually, I came to a place where I was seeing a pattern, and it, it led me to start putting things together in such a way that I realized if I look at people who are most deeply committed to their faith and believe that their faith is about transforming the world around them to bring glory to God, what does that look like in their life? And then I was able to go back and look at all the other questions that I've been asking in a variety of surveys. And I found, oh my gosh, there's a group of people here who no matter where you put them, their immediate mindset is, why did God put me here? What can I bring to this environment that will bring people closer to God, that will help them know him more deeply, more purely, etc. And so, you know, in looking at the election, what we found was that with sage cons, 91% of them turned out to vote hmm. in the last election. Highest I saw of any of the 80 different people groups that I was analyzing. And 93% of them voted for Donald Trump. Wow. And the reasons were twofold. Number one, because they couldn't stomach the idea of Mrs. Clinton's position on abortion. And number two, because of the Supreme Court and what they knew the the coming appointments to the Supreme Court would do to our nation for the next 20 to 30 years. So and there were a lot of other things. But but Sage Cons has, has turned out to be something now that I look at all the time. It's a terribly important group. So, so Sage Cons, repeat it again what it stands for, the acronym? Spiritually Active, Governance Engaged, Conservative Christians. Amazing. Huh. Hey, George, we had a guest, I'm trying, I don't know, 60 episodes ago, and he was talking about it's a, it's a battlefield that's going on in our nation with COVID and the riots. And it's right now, it's like shooting a flare up in the air and seeing where everybody is, what their positions is and where they're going and what they stand for. Do you see anything, and you probably haven't done studies quite yet, on what's going to be the shakeout of COVID as far as where people stood, pastors stood, congregants stood? Where, do you see any positives coming out of this last four or five months in people having to recommit what they stand for? Yeah, there, there are a lot of people who have had to describe why they would have hope in this kind of an environment. There are a lot of people who would have to explain 
why they think it's important that churches should be open. There are a lot of people who have had to tell people why they have turned to prayer for hope in a situation like we face today. I think that it's often under pressure. It's under suffering, conditions of suffering and hardship that we're really forced to to identify what we truly believe and where we're forced to figure out who we really are and what we really stand for. It's pretty easy when you've got an environment with lots of freedom and you got a lot of resources and there's lots of opportunities. You don't have to think too much about it because you're just riding along enjoying life. But then when you hit the wall with something like COVID or you're living in a city like Portland and things are being burned down around you and there's lots of violence and and people are shutting down those who are supposed to protect us and your government leaders are spouting out stuff that you may not agree with or believe in, that's, that's a real crucible in which you have to come to grips with, well, why aren't you just going along with the crowd? Why aren't you out there looting? Why aren't you burning down buildings? Why aren't you breaking windows? Why aren't you saying, you know, we need to shut down the police? It's a time when you've really got to figure out what's truth for you. And, and, you know, sadly, we live in a country right now where 58% of Americans say there's no such thing as absolute moral truth. Well, I think it's a period like this that gives us opportunities to have very different conversations with people. Theoretically, yeah, a Marxist can sit there and say there's no absolute moral truth because there's no God, there's no right or wrong. You're the arbiter of all that in your own life. But now we have a very different environment in which we can point to situations and say, really? (laughs) Is that what you believe is going on here? You know, it's why I don't think that this presidential election has anything really to do with personalities or parties or politics or platforms. Right. It's really all about worldview. That's it. I I really want to touch on that because uh, Charlie Kirk's going to be here on Sunday. And he, he was speaking tonight at the CNP in Washington, D.C. And as I said earlier, Lieutenant Governor Dan Forrest, and they had commented about our circumstance here. But he's, he's out going across the country with the Turning Point USA Students for Trump, uh, you know, doing door knocks and getting out the vote and, and working diligently. But it seems for a number of folks that they see this as a referendum on the direction of the nation with this worldview, this isn't about uh, a caustic, you know, harsh tweeting president and, uh, you know, his opponent. It, it seems as though we're looking so clearly. I've never seen the lines drawn so clearly as to what direction the nation's going to go. Before, it seemed kind of blurry. But right now, it's just so apparent, unlike anything in my 56 years. Am I off on that reading? I don't know. I I think in our lifetime, at least in my lifetime, this is the most clear set of choices that we've had. And the gap between the two sides, if you will, the two primary perspectives is wider than it's been since probably FDR, maybe Woodrow Wilson. I mean, we have to go back probably close to 100 years to find a time where we've had such a big gap between uh, the two sides. And so, you know, when I look at what we're finding in terms of our research, people with a biblical worldview and those without a biblical worldview, two starkly different perspectives on where the country ought to go, what kind of a nation it ought to be, what we believe about people. I mean, the whole business about defunding police, I would say that's actually based on worldview differences. Yeah where we know that you know a, a majority of people in this country do not believe that life is sacred. A majority of people in this country uh, you know, w- w- would say things about humanity. You know, they would say, for instance, that people are basically good. 69% of Americans believe that. It's not what the scriptures teach. You know, we're sinners. We're in need of a savior. We need protection in many dimensions of our life. It, it, from ourselves, frankly, because we are sinners. Right. And, and so 
when you look at all these different things that are taking place, when you peel it back, it comes back to what's your underlying worldview? What do you really believe about people? What do you believe about God? What do you believe about uh, humility, about goodness, about salvation, about the purpose of life? Most Americans believe that the purpose of life has nothing to do with knowing, loving, and serving God. They believe it has to do with their own sense of fulfillment. When you talk with people about, uh, you know, uh, the, the meaning of life, they don't believe that it's, or, or success in life, they don't believe it's about obeying God. Uh, they believe it's about, uh, you know, living up to your personal human potential. So we've got these two very different ways of looking at life. And now we're seeing the ramifications of playing out those beliefs. And so this is an incredibly important election for America to determine, do we want to move in a socialist Marxist approach? Is that what we're really gravitating toward where we want government elites to be making decisions for us based upon what that elite believes is best for us, where we're giving up our freedoms, where we're saying we don't want to be responsible. We don't think we're capable of being responsible. We need the elites to do that for us. Or do we believe that God is the author of freedom and, and that he wants us to experience that freedom and to have the freedom to know him and to love him and to serve him more and more deeply, to experience him and to cherish the things that he cherishes for us, knowing that he only wants our well-being, our best interests. That's why he gave us the Bible. It's not a set of limitations. It's a means to freedom. And so it is this vastly different way of looking at life, and people have to make a big decision on November 3rd. When I, I, I was going to ask, when you approach somebody that has, and some of these worldviews are downright evil, and there's no way arguing evil into good. How do you approach somebody, in your opinion, how do you approach somebody with a, a worldview that's so far off. You're, you're armed with some incredible data, but how do you approach it personally? How do you do that? The only thing I've found that works is, is asking them questions about what they believe, why they believe it, and what that looks like in practice. And so it's kind of a Socratic approach where yeah. you start off, I don't want to threaten anybody. I don't want to tell them I know I'm right. I want them to explain to me, if that's what you believe, what led you to that belief? Why do you believe that that's true? Do you know that other people have a different belief than that? How do you think about what they believe? How does that correspond to your belief? If we take your belief, like where would we see that in practice from day to day? What does that look like? And then, you know, going from there down into, is that the optimal experience for humanity, you know, and then eventually bringing God and, and, and scripture and truth into the conversation, their beliefs about that and juxtaposing that with what they believe. I, I will tell you that when I have these conversations with people, it's never one sitting. It always has to be multiple sittings. So I want to make sure that I'm not offending them because I want to have the opportunity to dig deeper and deeper and deeper into where they are. Because every time I do that, I find that they, I don't have to tell them what to believe. When they begin to hear what they say they believe, they realize it doesn't make sense. And so I'd rather have them come to that conclusion than me try to argue them into that position because that never works. Yeah. So you, I mean, that's been most fruitful for me. When you were talking about the sage cons, uh, I just love that term. I'm, I'm, I've got to find a Twitter like handle on it. 20 people in here saying the same thing. Sage cons. <laughs> when, when, when you're referring to that, it's, it's evident to me, I've, I've had the chance to speak to 15,000 pastors across the country with these renewal projects that we do, trying to engage them in the public square. And, and it seems the older pastors are more open and, but it seems as though for 50 years, we've abdicated our responsibility in the public square. And it's almost an anathema or an enigma to a younger millennial pastor or, you know, some of the younger guys, they just cannot process 
anything to do with politics. And they don't think that the gospel has any role in that. Christianity has any role in that. And a church has any role in that. They're the antithesis of a sage con. And, and, and you look at that, that's, that's an influence of a worldview. If you follow that out, where does it end up? And what do they expect a government to look like? And, 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 and I love the way that you say, asking them the question, play that out. What, what government are you looking for? And how does socialism fit the scriptures? Have you had any inroads with the younger generation in regards to, in Christendom itself, in regards to their abdication of politics? Or is that a brick wall? Uh, boy, there's a lot of stuff going through my head right now. Some things <laughs> I probably shouldn't talk about in public. But uh, one of the things I'll say, you know, at Arizona Christian University, one of the distinctives of the university and why I'm, I'm a professor there and we have the Cultural Research Center where we do all this research there, I'm there because the perspective is the most important thing that we deliver to our students is the refining of their worldview. We don't want any student leaving here without a biblical worldview. Amen. And so I actually created a tool that we use with every student at the beginning of every academic year to assess their worldview so that we as faculty can look at, are we getting the job done or not? If we're not, what do we need to change? And it gives us tracks to run down so that we can do a better job. But the other thing, in addition to worldview, is the reason that we're trying to make sure that our students have a biblical worldview is because every major that's offered by the university is offered intentionally because we believe it's a profession that they'll go into that will help to transform the culture. Yeah. It will help to dictate the, the, the contours of American society. And so when I talk with pastors about what they're doing in ministry, I ask them not to think of their church as a religious factory where they're turning out people who are better informed about biblical information than the people in the factory down the street. But that what God has asked them to do is to be an outpost of cultural transformation. I love that. And their job is to figure out what is the unique vision and calling that God has given to each one of their people. And then to see to it that the church supports each of those individuals uniquely in preparing them to go out and fulfill that calling and vision that God has given to each of those people. It's not about the church growing as an institution. I love this. It, it, it's, it's about Christians across the country being the church, capital Amen. C, and transforming the culture around us by taking who Christ has made us, how he's prepared us to be a player in this world system to bring him honor and glory, to bring people back to his truth so that ultimately we're able to live the best life possible because it's the one that God ordained for us. But it's the job of that local pastor to know each of the individuals in his or her church so well that they're teaming them up with all the resources they need to become the ultimate transformational agent that God put each Christian on this planet to be. Wow. And so it's not about having more and more people sitting in the seats, taking notes. That's failure. Success is when you get people out of the seats with an understanding in their head and their heart. They've been transformed. Romans 12, 1, you know, we, we transform their minds, not for the purpose of just changing it, but for the purpose of changing the world for the glory of God. You, yeah, we're coming to the top of the hour and I, I did this I don't know if you've done much research on this, but th this is this is something as a narrative that I've used across the country when speaking to pastors. Uh, my entire ministry has been involved in the Calvary Chapel churches. And Calvary Chapel started in California in 1968. And that's when, and I say this often, but that's when Bobby Kennedy was shot and Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King was shot. And you had the My Lai Massacre and, and, and the Tet Offensive. And there was Marxism infiltrating the country. And, and I remember the war riots that in Washington, D.C. when I was with my father. But in 68, Reagan was governor in California. We had the fifth largest GDP. It was really a, a, an amazing state at the time. And Chuck comes on the scene, Chuck Smith, and sees the, the shores of California awash with hippies who have checked out of the traditional church and explored Eastern religions and then started to use drugs. And... 
and there's, there's a, a cultural transformation in the nation. The church has kind of lost its foothold into the lives of these young people. And so Chuck reaches out with his wife, Kay, and they just start teaching the Bible verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book, and, and, and bring in some Maranatha music, something kind of equivalent to the day. And, and then all of a sudden, this Calvary Chapel movement begins but Chuck remained apolitical because that generation's been so burned out. And Calvary chapels for 52 years have experienced 10,000% growth. South of Van Nuys, there's 350 Calvary chapels. There's 1,800 of them around the world. And I, I think the two of the 10 largest churches in America may be Calvary chapels. And we've had the Harvest Crusades with Greg Laurie. So that's conversion growth, not transfer growth. But we've stayed out of the ecclesia, the assembly, the public square. And, and we've just been teaching the Bible and people have been coming to Christ and we're taking notes like you were describing. But if we look at the cultural transformation of California, well, from 68 to 2020, we now have the sixth largest GDP, maybe the seventh. We have the highest gas tax, sales tax, income tax, corporate tax. We lead the nation in debt. We lead the nation in poverty. We lead the nation in homelessness. We're the authors of no-fault divorce, transgender bathroom bills, and the most secularly progressive sex ed curriculum anywhere. It's just, you, you can't even speak of it in church. And California has aborted more children than the entire population of Canada. And, I, and, and yet, the church has never owned more property, had more buildings, had more people going to church, more radio stations, more Christian concerts and there's the, the state is in trouble. So if that's not data, I don't know what is, but I'll just give that to you and you can process that. Well, you know, years ago I wrote a book called revolution and it was out of my frustration that the church wasn't getting the job done. And, and for years and years and years, I'd looked for, that, that silver bullet, that if we just utilized it, we would change the culture for Christ. And, and God had to work me over and work me over until I came to realize revolution, spiritually speaking, happens one life at a time. Amen. And so uh, it's not my job to be the central transformation agent of America. It's my job to be an agent of transformation in every place where God puts me each day and to be content with that and to do an excellent job at what he gives me to work at. I, it's not just to be the best informed guy. It's not to be the guy with the most numbers. It's to be the guy who's bringing God's truth in such a dynamic and tangible manner into the lives of other people that they say, yeah, I never thought of it that way. That's pretty cool. What else you got? And, and then we can go on a journey and to realize it takes time. You know, I look at America and I know we're not going to get out of the hole that we're in overnight. We didn't get here overnight. We're not going to get out of it overnight, but we've got to start somewhere. Now's a great time. And taking God's truth to the culture is the only way to do it. I, I'm going to, I'm going to take what you said and, and I'm an optimist. So when Jesus calmed the wind and the waves, the, the wind caused the waves. So, so one results in the other. And even if you stop the wind, the, the waves still continue. But when he said, peace be still, both ended at once. He, he can take the source of, of the problem and the problem itself and correct it immediately. And, and what your work has done for me personally, and I, I want to leave to encourage you with this. Um, what your work has done for me personally is you... You've allowed us to see the landscape. You, you've given a reading. And now I know what to cry out for. And, and when you describe this idea of a remnant, God's in the business of, he gets the glory. And he just tells us to stand. We're just instruments. And what you described of yourself and, and really what we're doing here, we're nobody in the equation. But if we stand and we're obedient in the midst of the trial, I personally think that right now, this, this is the church's greatest opportunity 
that God can not only cease the wind, he can cease the waves and there will be an awakening and a revival. I, 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 I've, I've always looked at the Calvary Chapel movement and I'm a second, third generation pastor. I thought, eh, the tent, you know, and the, all that stuff and the beach baptisms and yeah, I, I, I've heard about it, I've never seen it. I'm 56, I, got, I just have to tell you right now, I've never been more optimistic in all my life because when the odds are down, that's when God moves the most. And I, I have his peace. I'm excited about the future. I know this is gonna be the church's greatest hour. You're, you're a statistician. I'm just gonna give you that hope right now. <laughs> and this is, this is a guy who's facing a contempt hearing tomorrow. Yeah, there you go. So. Yeah. Yeah, well, your great. numbers probably lag a little bit, so you'll have to wait about three years for those numbers to all come true with what Rob's saying right now. Uh, not if I do my job right. You know, with a large enough sample, I'll be able to detect it, and, uh, you know, we'll Good. see it. But Start, start sampling. Yeah, I mean, God, God's in the business of transforming lives. There's yeah. no reason to think that he's not going to do that now. It's a time when America desperately needs Amen. that transformation. We desperately need him, and... I mean, we ought to be honored that we get to be part of the group that's, yeah. that's bringing that to the country. Please, yeah. Lord. George, thank you so much for all the work that you've done on behalf of the body of Christ, your tireless labor, uh, and, and, and that you're not afraid of putting the truth forward. You do it with joy. People may not like the results, but the reality is you're giving people truth and it's allowing them to dispel fear and, and face it and say, God, you're bigger than this. So I, I want to personally say thank you. You've ministered to my life and you've blessed me and you're a cool dude and I, I really enjoyed meeting you. <laughs> well, thank you. I'll be praying for you and, and the church tomorrow and hope we can catch a hamburger sometime soon. I would yeah. be honored. Bless you. Thanks yeah. for joining us tonight. Thank you. Tell your wife happy birthday. <laughs> okay, will do. <laughs> Well, uh, that, what a, what a, I, yeah. I, I love tonight. Some, some folks may not like, like numbers. I worked for AC Nielsen. We did projected data. I had to make it, you know, applicable to the, the people who were trying to sell their products. And you take numbers and you say, well, this will tell a story as to why you need to put this product where it needs to go. And, and I, I see a man like that that does it for the church and, and he's been doing it for years and he hasn't strayed away from the hard truth. I, I like uh, that last little bit, the last five minutes, because he summarized what you've been saying for the last 10, 15 years, but he said it just in a different way of the church needs to affect the culture, and unfortunately the culture is affecting the church, yeah. and we need to reverse that. So he just said it in a different way that you've been saying for a long time, get involved. Yeah. You know? Amen. So that, I, I, th that, I thought that was cool. Yeah. Having done all, stand. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Well, tomorrow's big day, 10 a.m. Uh, so covet your prayers. I am just blessed to have the opportunity to be surrounded by so many wonderful folks who have just been fervently praying. I, I, I pray that you enjoyed uh, George Barna. What an honor to have him on the live stream tonight. And we've got other really exciting guests coming had, up. Uh, Charlie Kirk on Sunday. Charlie Kirk on Sunday. Free, uh, Burma free Rangers. Burma Rangers. When are on, they on? On Monday. On Monday. And that'll be awesome. And, and Kelly has some other people lined oh, we got, up. We, we won't, got cool we won't tell you up. about those now, but uh, that's why you need to hit that subscribe button. And for sure for tomorrow, hit that bell that alerts you if we have to do alert. But Kelly's lining up some great people. So we should have some exciting times ahead of us. Yeah. If you hit that, that bell uh, tomorrow after the hearing, uh, I'll do an update and let everybody know what transpired and we'll go from there. So, uh, I'm going to close this in prayer and then I'll read the blessing. So, mm -hmm. Lord, thank you for George Barna. And Lord, just the, the tireless work and the, the faithfulness through the years, how you've uniquely gifted him and blessed him. And Lord, that he and his wife uh, on the day of her, her birthday, that he would still, uh, together they would agree to spend time with us and to equip us and encourage us, especially as, as a congregation, we're awaiting uh, the judge's decision tomorrow. But Lord, love hopes all things, and we know that the heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord, and you guide it like a water course, and nothing happens to us that doesn't first pass through your sovereign hand. Our job is to simply stand where you place us and to be obedient. And so, Lord, we trust you with that. And the amazing thing is, Lord, when we're standing where you've placed us, you also give us an amazing peace. And I just wanted to say thank you for that. Not just a peace for me, but my whole family. 
in this congregation. Lord, how you do that is beyond my understanding. I, I've just so enjoyed the rest and the time with you and uh, the encouragement of your saints. And Lord, what a wonderful season this has been. And, and it's all glory to you. And Lord, thank you for my brothers and sisters in Christ who have interceded at the throne of grace on behalf of all of us. And Lord, just covered and showered and, and blessed in a, a symphony of prayer. And so God, thank you. Thank you for the faithful, fervent prayers of your saints. And Lord, thank you that you're at the right hand of the Father interceding for us as well. We, we just rejoice and, and thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, blessing for y'all tonight. If you want to recite it back to us, I'll tell you what, I think we sure could use it. So number six, 24 through 26. This is our 141st reading of this or reciting or singing of it. And uh, I just have to tell you, it's just meant the world to me. And I know you guys are blessing me while we're blessing you with the words the Lord's given us. So let's read it together. The Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. And may the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen. 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 Well, we'll keep you posted tomorrow, 10 a.m. <laughs> I remember the movie Elf? 10 a.m. Santa's going to be here. <laughs> All right. 10 a.m. tomorrow morning. Covet your prayers. Good night, everybody. See you tomorrow.